And in this opening verse, Jesus is described as the Amen, the faithful and true the ruler of God's creation. And this description is important because the church themselves are about to be contrasted with the description of Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, is a faithful and true witness to God the Father. And all of who God the Father is finds an amen in the person and work of the Son of God who governs all creation. That's who is addressing this church. So these are the words of Christ. He is speaking through this letter to this church. And just imagine that, right? I always, I want to preach through all these letters someday in the book of Revelation. There's seven of them because it's just, a, it's just a, an amazing thought experiment that Jesus knew each one of these local churches so intimately, so individually, that he could address these letters to them of things that he praised about them, but also things that they needed to repent of and to turn away from. And, and it's just amazing because I always think about if you wrote a letter to our church, or the church in Minneapolis, or the church in St. Paul, like, what would that say? He would have things to say because Jesus is still alive and active, and he sees us, and he hears us. But here's a specific example of a local church in, in time and history where Jesus says something to them about their condition. Now, that gets us to the first verse that's taken out of context. Look at verses 15 through 16. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you So here's the first verse taken out of context. And as I mentioned in the beginning, the common way to understand this verse is Christ wants us to make a choice. Either be hot for the Lord, be on fire for him, be passionate about him, or be cold. Like run away, rebel, do something like other than being in the middle, other than being a maybe. Don't be halfway. Don't be uncommitted. That's usually how this verse is uh, apply, but here's the problem. The part of getting hot or on fire for the Lord, that makes sense. Of course, the Lord would want that from his followers. But does the Lord really want those that might be open to him or warm towards him or have faith the size of a mustard seed? Does he really want them to either get more passionate or just abandon him? That seems to contradict a lot of other scripture of the heart of Christ for, for his, his believers, for those that struggle, for those that have doubts, for those that have a complicated relationship with him. It seems that most of the New Testament says that he's patient with us and gracious towards us, and he's willing to lovingly rebuke us and call him back to him, but it isn't his heart. It's like, ah, if you're half-hearted, just, just leave me. I don't want anything to do with you. That seems to contradict a lot of Scripture. So that's not what's going on. And most commentators and scholars agree it actually makes a lot of sense when you understand the historical background of this city because the imagery here is pulling from something that would have been very familiar to those that would be part of this church in Laodicea. So here's the background. Here's the historical background. Laodicea was, was, was connected or in proximity to a couple other cities, and one of those cities near Laodicea was known for having really cold drinking water that was refreshing. It was a great experience to drink this refreshing cold water. So there was a city not too far away, but that was their reputation. And that's probably why that city was settled there. And there was another city na near Laodicea that was also known for not cold water, but hot springs. And it was thought of, like, you go to this city and you experience these hot springs, and it has this healing experience. So you have a, one city known for cold, refreshing water, another one known for hot springs that has this kind of medicinal healing experience. And then you have Laodicea. It has neither cold water or hot springs. None of them. And as I mentioned in the beginning, this city did not exist because of proximity to a body of water. 
It, was, it existed because of trade. Raises the questions, well, how did they get their water? Every city needs, needs water uh, to be a city, so where did they get their water? Well, in this situation, they had to pipe it in. They had all these aqueducts that would bring water to the city from another source, and, and compared to the neighboring cities, this water that they would pipe in was awful. It was terrible water. The temperature was awful. It wasn't right. The taste of the water could best be described as barf. It was terrible water. It was stuff that you would not want to drink. Now, a funny experience happened this week where I'm in my study um, with, with Josiah. He and I shared the same office, and we had uh, uh, David Nelson, who used to be the pastoral resident here. He came in for a visit, and we were talking about what we were preaching that week because he's a pastor now a little north of here, uh, and he's overseeing his own local church. And I mentioned this passage and that I was about to, to preach on it, and so he asked me, are you going to use the coffee illustration to talk about this passage? I'm like, no, I don't know what that illustration is. Then I hear Josiah in the background, right, because I invested all this time and energy mentoring, coaching David, and he says, ah, this is when the student becomes the master. <laughs> and so he shared an illustration, so I'll give some credit to David Nelson. Here's an illustration that came from him that he heard from somebody else, but this is the coffee. I thought it was a great illustration, so I have to use it. So the point here, think about it like coffee. That's going to be a little bit more familiar since that, you know, the water in St. Paul is, is pretty good, right? So, the, so you can't really go to that experience. But think about coffee. Coffee is great when it's hot. It's great to have a hot cup of coffee. Warms the heart, awakens the senses. Remember, I'm an old barista, so I got things to say about coffee, right? Coffee also is great cold. Put it on some ice, a nice cold press. I like to put a little sugar, a little bit of cream in that. It's a great experience. It's also very refreshing to have iced coffee. But let cold coffee warm up, and it's terrible. Ice melts, becomes diluted. It's terrible to have, have iced coffee that becomes room temperature. And the, and the opposite is also true. When hot coffee cools down to room temperature, it's terrible. And some of you, this is your morning, right? You have that hot cup of coffee, but it's such a chaotic morning of just trying to get out the door and trying to get to school or trying to get uh, to work and all your responsibilities. And you have to go back and forth to that cup of coffee where it's hot, but then you forget about it for 15 minutes. It cools off, so you have to nuke it. And then it's hot again, but then you forget about it for 25 minutes, and then you have to put it back in the microwave. How many people here repeatedly warm up your coffee in the microwave every morning? Yeah? That's right. That's a safe place. You can emit stuff like that here, right? And it's awful, right? It's, it's, that's, and we do that because it's awful to drink coffee that's lukewarm. And this is the point. The point is, is hot? Great. It's refreshing, right? It's, 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 it, there's a healing quantity of, quality to, uh, in this case, uh, water that's hot or cold. It's refreshing. And he's telling this church that you are neither. If you were hot or cold, you would have qualities that are refreshing or healing, but you have neither. You are lukewarm. And lukewarm means I want to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, your witness is making me sick. And so what is going on in their life that's causing their witness or their character to be lukewarm to the degree that, that, that Jesus does want to spit them out of his mouth, like drinking the water from Laodicea? Well, in verses 17 through 18, he starts to describe them. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. You say, I am rich, have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So verse 17 describes what this community of Christians think of themselves. They say, look at us. We're wealthy and successful and things are going so well. We're so secure in our position in life, we don't need a thing. But it raises the question, is their self-perception accurate? And we see in these verses that it's not. And so Jesus gives them a reality check. You think that you look great and you have your life all together, but in reality, he says, what does he call them? Wretched and pitiful. That's what he calls this local church, this body of believers. You're wretched and pitiful. I was trying to come up with something this week. Like, what comes to your mind when you think of something that's pitiful? That's quite a strong thing to, for, for the Lord to say about a group of Christians, that you're pitiful. So I'm like, what's something that's, that's pitiful? And I thought of dogs doing a number two. It's probably the most pitiful thing that you could ever think of. Like, you could have a really, like, stately golden retriever, wins awards at, the, like, the state fair, right? And just this stately, gorgeous thing. But as soon as you let him outside or take him on a walk and he has to do a number two, it is the most shameful, pitiful sight. You ever you know what I'm talking about? Like this, the posture that a dog has to have and the look on their face of just shame. It's pitiful, right? And for some reason, that's what came to my mind of like, like, like the Lord could view Christians that way, like just this shameful, pitiful, like, like display, like they think they're this stately sage thing, but in reality, that's what they look like to him. They're also described in this verse as poor, blind, and naked. Again, this is the exact opposite of their self-perception, that they have it all together, that they're wealthy, and they don't need anything. And now Jesus is about to call them away from these things to awaken to a new reality. Notice how that description of poor, naked, and blind line up to what Jesus is offering them if they just turn to him. They're described as poor, but then Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. In other words, you're making the wrong investment. You're going to the wrong store. You're committing your time to the wrong place. You need to come to me because you're going to places where you're investing in things that were Rust and moth can destroy it. But I'm offering you something that of eternal value and satisfaction. If you would just come to me, you'll be rich in Christ. He describes them as naked, which connects to that, that metaphor of that, they, that, they, that they're shameful. But Jesus provides and offers white clothes to wear, that he's offering to cover their shame, that their unrighteousness can be clothed with his righteousness, which is pure and holy. They're described as blind, but Jesus says that he offers medicine for their eyes, which can open their eyes to see what they can't see. And Jesus, in all this imagery, is saying this to them, making it clear to them that your economic welfare, your success in life, doesn't mean that you are spiritually healthy. In fact, you are so self-deceived by these things that you're giving your time and your resources to that you don't even see it. And one of the things to keep in mind with a passage like this is that it shows us and it should prick our hearts to know that we could be in the same place. 
that we're so caught up in other things in the world and success, wealth, status, approval, whatever it could be, and because of investing in those things that, that in a sense we could present ourselves in a way that we are strong and successful and we have it all together, but Jesus can pierce through the veneer of that and see what we are in the depths of our soul and know that you are none of those things. Because on the outside, you have it all together, but on the inside, I see that our relationship is falling apart. And at a point like this, you're kind of like, oh, man, I'm really getting a whipping here from the pulpit. Like, that's it? Like, like I could be self-deceived. I could just think I have it all together, but I don't. Man, is this, so how does Jesus view me right now? Does he just view me like that golden retriever illustration that you just threw at me? Is that, is that how am I supposed to feel? Okay, go now back to your neighborhood with joy in the Lord, right? That, but there's more to it in this passage if you, if you keep looking. What is Jesus' posture towards us that could get so self-deceived that we don't see the things in our life that are ruining us? Well, we see that in the next verses in 19 through 20. Jesus says this, Those whom what? I love. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. All this is going on in these believers' lives. They're self-deceived. They're investing in things that are outside of the Lord. They're going through to the wrong store and investing in these things and giving their time to these things rather than the Lord. And Jesus comes and he confronts them, but why does he do that? What's the motivation for him to come to believers who are self-deceived? It's love. It's love, brothers and sisters. It's unconditional, sovereign love that would cause the Lord to come to us when our life, life is just so, we're so blinded to things in our life that are destroying us. It's love that he comes to us to call us back, to get us on a different path. Jesus displays his love for us through this rebuke and through this discipline. And it's the perfect balance, whether you're talking about the Lord or you're thinking about like parenting or like a friendship, right? Discipline without love, that's harsh. But you truly don't care about anybody unless you're willing to tell them that there might be things in their life that are destroying them. A true friend a good parent would bring that up to their kids and their friends, like, I love you, so therefore I need to see, I need to show you what I see, because you don't see it, and it's destroying you. That's love, and that's the feeling we should have in a passage like this. If it pricks us, if it convicts us, that's because it's the love of God coming into your life, not to make you feel shame and just to sit in that shame and that pity, but to call you back on a path of life and grace and forgiveness. And so that's what the Lord is saying here. And that's where we get to this second verse that's taken out of context, that Jesus declares that he's standing at the door and he's knocking but in this context, it's for whom? Christians. He's standing at the door of a Christian's life, a Christian's heart that's self-deceived, that on the outside has it all together, but on the inside they're falling apart, and he's at the door of that person's life. And he's there because of love. And he's there because he wants to call you out of that destructive life, life path that you're on. And he's knocking at the door. 
And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Notice that's the gospel. It doesn't come and convict you and then just says, be better. Be better. You can improve. Be better. That's like the social media uh, message. Like you go on social media, the whole thing is like, be better. Shame. Be better, right? That's the message that you often hear from the world. But the gospel's different. It will show you the reality of our faults, but call us to repentance because of love. And here the imagery is one of hospitality. He says, if you let the Lord in, what does he do? Come in and shame you more? No, you have fellowship with him. He comes in to eat with you, to dine with you at that table, to have some iced coffee or a hot popping, hot cup of coffee, right? That's, that's what he's coming in to do. He's, he's coming in for fellowship and hospitality because that's what the Lord wants. He, was, he, he, wants to, he doesn't want just like some type of moralism. He wants a relationship with you that's built on love and grace and forgiveness and if we would just let the Lord in, that we would just hear, you know, Lord, you are right. I, I worked so hard to get everything else in my life in place that I've neglected you. And to everybody else around me, I look really good. But you know, Lord, that inside I am falling apart. And I need you, and I need your help, and I need your grace. And he's knocking right now, and he's willing to give it. If you were just willing to admit, yeah, that's where I am, Lord. Just come in. Have a cup of coffee with me because I need you back in my life to start putting this back together. And that's the nature of the Lord. He shares with us everything that he's achieved in his death and resurrection. Verse 21 says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. You let me in and we practice fellowship and hospitality, I will also let you sit with me in the victory of my death and resurrection and what I'm going to achieve when I wrap up history in the new heaven and new earth. This passage ends in verse 22 saying this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears, open them up. If the Spirit is laying this at your heart, open the door. Not because of shame, but because of love. Not because you're trying to get your life together, but because you're trying to invite back in eternal wealth that you have in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Sometimes it's hard to hear criticism. And sometimes it's hard to hear criticism because we often receive criticism from people that don't really care about our well-being. But other times we, hear, we can get criticism from people that do care. And they're saying something because they do love you. And they see that there are things that are happening in your life that are not for your good. Um, it re, I, had a, I was thinking about, like, well, how can I illustrate this with my own life? And it probably says something like if you go through an exercise and it, you struggle with, like, did I ever receive criticism that was warranted, right? That's just something like, it's a, it's a good thing to introspect. Like, you sh we should have, like, a list of that stuff, right? I did think of one thing. Um, and it was something that I remember he hearing this from, from my spouse years ago. Uh, that she noticed in like sometimes in social settings, especially if I was busy, I had a lot going on, a lot on my plate, either at like an event or just kind of in life in general. She says, I notice that sometimes when you talk to people, you're not really listening. It's like you're, you're not even making eye contact. You can tell you're just in a different world. And she goes, it's embarrassing. It's like, it's like you're communicating with all your body language that you don't care about that person. 
And at first, I got a little fussy about that. It was a little salty. Like, yeah, no, that ain't me. That ain't me. But like, why would she take the time to tell me that? Well, because she was right. And she, she wanted me to see it. She wanted me to have ears to hear. And that's the thing. That's what the, the verse is saying. Like, do you hear this coming from the Lord? Is the Spirit applying it to your heart? And if it is, let him in. Open the door. Invite him back into your life with some hospitality because maybe you haven't had the Lord over for weeks, for years and you've been investing in so many other things in your life, and I'm here to tell you the gospel, and the gospel says this, that the Lord is not ashamed of you. He still loves you, and he's still knocking. And today he's just saying, just open the door. Open the door, and this can be the first day that we start to put it back together with one another through my grace and through my love. That's what the Lord is saying to us today.